Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview Leanne Saffer, which is such an incredible human being. I actually found her, one, through my girlfriend who saw her on the internet, and then two, my hero above heroes, Glennon Doyle, posted her book, which was number two after... Glennon's Untamed on the charts and that was so cool so I saw that and I was like I gotta talk to this girl she wrote an incredible book called Please Don't Send Me Flowers which goes through her story of uh, divorce of falling in love with a woman of breast cancer so many things Leanne is a badass and she has such a powerful voice and a powerful story and it was an honor to get to interview her so i hope you enjoy if you guys are enjoying the unity project podcast and you want to support and get more involved then i would be so so honored and just thankful if you went over to my patreon page for the unity project where you can give as little as one dollar a month and become a big part of why i get to actually make this podcast and to help me continue to make this podcast and continue having these really cool interviews about topics that i really think are going to change the world if we talk about more or you can go pick up a copy of my book, Finding Home. You can do that at my website, JackieGronland.com. Or if you can't afford to support me financially, that is absolutely okay. Leaving a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to podcasts, that helps so, so much more than I think we give credit to. So any of those things are wonderful. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Leanne, how is it going over there? <laughs> it's going great. It is snowing, which never happens here. So snowing. Kids are stoked. Oh my gosh! Wait, where are you? Oregon, or is that? Oh. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, they like to threaten us with snow at least three times a year, and it happens about every five years. So oh my we're excited. Gosh. <laughs> oh wow! I can only imagine. I'm from Colorado, where it snowed like in the middle of May sometimes. So I feel like it's totally. the opposite experience. <laughs> but that's awesome. I love Portland. Actually, my my girlfriend's a travel nurse, and we're wanting um, one of her next jobs to be in Portland. So I might be in your neighborhood for a while. We'll stop by. Yes, for sure. But Leanne, thank you so much for being on this podcast. For those who don't know, Leanne is an incredible writer. She just put out a book called Please Don't Send Me Flowers. Or actually, when did you release this book? Um, I re released it on January 1st. Okay, so somewhat recently. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I saw it. I think I saw, well, my girlfriend showed me, and then I saw Glennon Doyle, who's like my biggest hero in the world, post it. And I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, who is this girl? I have to read her story. <laughs> Oh but, my God, that was such a whirlwind. Yeah, I was like, thanks, Doyle. That was helpful. Oh my gosh. Have you, I'm assuming you've read her books. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so, oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. So I was excited when you responded when I reached out. But um, for those listening who don't know anything about your story, do you want to give like a quick synopsis of kind of what, I feel like there's three main parts from my understanding, at least from your book. Um, but do you want to give like a little brief synopsis for whoever's listening? 
Yeah. So the book basically details the last five years of my life, which were like getting out of a very emotionally abusive marriage and then falling in love with a woman. And both of those things were very hard because I was married to a man and I grew up in like a Christian environment and a Christian church. And so I felt a lot of guilt for leaving and then a lot of shame. And that carried into like when I met the love of my life and I'm like, Oh shit, I'm not allowed to love a woman. And I also don't identify as gay. So I talk a lot about what that looked like for me um, and kind of the shame and the guilt from society around that. Um, And then right after my wife and I got married, I found out that I had breast cancer and I was 33 years old. So I talk a lot about that and it's all just very vulnerable and open because I realized as I was going through cancer treatment that people weren't normalizing it and they weren't talking about it in a way that was honest. I remember reading some other books and being like, this isn't what I'm going through at all. Like we're sugarcoating it and we're sugarcoating everything because we're afraid to talk about emotional abuse. We're afraid to talk about what it's like to love a woman when like you've loved a man and we don't talk about like the nitty gritty details of cancer and this shit happens to a lot of people. Mm. So that was kind of like why I wanted to write the, write the book. I'm like, I'm not the first person that this has happened to and I'm not the last, but we need to make it so you don't feel so much shame bringing these subjects up and make it so it's more understood. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I just reading what I did of the section where you got the breast cancer, I was just thinking to myself, like, I've never heard it talked about in this way at all. And I was going through the chapter where you're talking about kind of like someone sent you like lipstick and a compact mirror. I was like, just put some lipstick. (laughs) I was so mad for you. I was like, oh, my gosh, I just can't even imagine the anger and the like I hear so much about um first of all how uh any sorts of diseases in women aren't as researched and aren't as like understood and whatnot because of uh, patriarchy and a million other really stupid sexist reasons (laughs) right yeah but so just reading that and reading like kind of how we like you said sugarcoat it with just pink ribbons and yada yada like oh my goodness I I just, I have so many questions for you. Um, oh, yeah. Ask away. <laughs> yeah. But I guess to, to start off the episode, would you mind describing the relationship that you have with your body? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a very complex and ever-evolving topic for me, um, you know, because I feel like there's the physical body and the emotional body. Mm-hmm. And my physical body... I have a hard time with post treatment. Um, You know, you come out of basically having every cell in your body like decimated by chemo and then you're rebuilding yourself and you don't look the same and you don't feel the same. And, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of aging gracefully because I'm like, we're supposed to age and like, what an honor. But at the same time, like this wasn't something that was supposed to happen. Like it's not natural to have your tits chopped off. So, um, and I've, I've had a lot of like health issues since then. So I, I try to remind myself like what my body has carried me through and how incredible it really is because the amount that I was still able to do when I was going through treatment and even post treatment, but I get frustrated by the way it looks because with the amount of like working out, I do and this and that, um, I'm like, this isn't my body. It's not responding the way that it used to. So 
that's hard. And emotionally, I feel like in my body, I've never felt stronger, like in my mind and in my heart, you know, when all these things happened to me, I found my voice and it's very unapologetic and it's very blunt and it's exactly who I should be and what I should have been doing all along. So I'm very proud of that. And I feel like in my mind, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Mm. Okay. That, that makes sense. How, when you say that it gave you your voice, what do you, what does that look like? Or what did that look like? Um, you know, growing up in a family that was pretty religious, I felt like there was only one way to do things, you know, to do things right and to be accepted and to not be judged and shamed and go to hell. And, um, I didn't agree with a lot of things, but I kept silent because I was afraid and I didn't want to be wrong and I didn't want to be an outcast. And then I married into a relationship with a man that didn't let me have a voice. He didn't let me have a say, you know, cause everything I said, it was wrong to him and it wasn't good enough and I was stupid. And so when I finally got out of that and I was like, actually, no, what I'm saying does make sense and it matters. And people responded to that and validated it. I was like, oh my God, that feels so good. Like, this is what we all need to have. Like, we all need to be open and to hearing what other people say and think and not shut people down. So that was kind of the journey and the start of that. And it's just gotten louder over time as, you know, the reason for the book, I realized that people weren't being totally open and honest about hard things. And so I'm like, well, I'll take one for the team. I'll be the one that says it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I was like wanting to throw bricks when I was reading the part about your ex-husband. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? This uh, has got so to be like some kind of movie. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, it's so, it's fascinating to me because I mean, obviously I don't know you personally, but from reading how you write in your book, you you seem to be like a very, and like you're saying now, a very like straightforward person. Like you'll say it how it is. Am I right? Yeah, 100%. Oh. I, I'm, like, I'm sorry if I offend you, but I'm going to speak the truth. So. Yeah, no, I appreciate it and I love it. And it's just so, it blows my mind that um, that's who you are now knowing kind of like knowing what I know of your story from your book of your ex-husband and how he wouldn't let you have a voice and your opinions didn't matter. And you you were just forced to be so small, it, it seemed like. And to totally. be so quiet. Like, I don't know. I guess like as a kid, before you were married, do you feel like you had this big voice and then it was silenced by him? Or did it kind of take going through that marriage and, and everything else in between to kind of get to where you are with that? Um, I think that I always felt like I was a little bit silenced. It just got worse once I got married. And I was like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to submit to my husband. But again, like growing up in a place where you don't totally agree with how you're being raised or like some of the things that your family's saying, but you don't feel like you can say it. Like I felt small. It's like the big voice was already, it was always in my head, but I couldn't get the words out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what ways um, do you feel like you were silenced growing up? I know you've mentioned a few things, uh, at least from reading, like about um, your family being religious and different things like that. And just like things in the culture of growing up as a girl, there's very specific things that make us feel silenced. But what did that look like for you? Like, do you have some examples? Yeah, I mean... It wasn't, you know, let me set the record straight. Like my, my family's incredible and they're amazing and they never meant to make me feel that way. But growing up in the early nineties, it's like, you know, 
you go to church and they tell you that being gay is a sin and but I'm like well those people aren't bad like those people aren't wrong but you felt like you couldn't speak up because you go to this church with thousands of people that believe this thing Mm -hmm. and you're like am I the only person that thinks that this is terrible you know so it was stuff like that it wasn't necessarily someone saying like you're wrong that's not correct like you can't believe that it was just these like layers and layers and piles and piles of teachings and society and all of that that kind of made me feel like oh maybe I shouldn't speak up because nobody else is yeah oh I get that especially like I don't know when you're raised in any kind of church or even even just as a kid in general uh everything that you're experiencing you take or I found that I've that we take as like this is what's true not like questioning what else is out there but like what we're being told and what's ingrained in our heads from a mom or a dad or a church or any kind of like authority that's what we take as like what is true and so growing up for me like my my dad didn't trust church he was super conservative christian but does not trust church stuff long story but Mm. he ended up kind of making like our own little house church which was a little bit culty (laughs) and so (laughs) everything Everything that he was saying it made me feel like alienated but in a sense like oh that that's what's true because that's what my dad says and that just is what is true and so things like being gay is wrong or this is wrong or don't do this or that like it just you can't leave your husband (laughs) yes oh my gosh it just it doesn't give you any other options and so to even yeah they're not exposing you to any other religion or any other belief they're only exposing you to that one and as a kid you're like I don't know how to expose myself to every anything else but I know that there's other things out there yeah absolutely did did you at all question like faith stuff or have any kind of like deconstruction period before meeting Steph or was that kind of the the thing that kind of shook things up in church world oh no I was like two feet out the door probably when I was like 20 Um, maybe a little yeah maybe a little bit earlier I remember when my husband and I were going to get married and his dad's a pastor and he was going to be our minister whatever they call the person that marries you um and he kind of gave us the script to look over and it was like I will submit to my husband and this and this and I was like oh hell no I'm not going to say that and that's when I was just like this is fucked um you know, and my ex and I didn't ever go to church. And it's hard because there was so much about the church that I do like. Like, I like the community and I like, you know, kind of having the same morals and goals as people. But um, it seemed so twisted, like the older that I got and the more that I kind of branched out and made different friends and had different communities. I was like, wait, you can find these same values in other places without having to believe you know, like all these judgmental things about the world and people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That must have, oh my gosh, that must have been really, really difficult walking into that marriage with that already knowing of like, oh, this doesn't have to be the ultimate truth. Um, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. How would you describe, I guess, back when you were in the relationship with your, with your ex-husband, how your relationship with your body was at that point? Um, man, I think I had a lot of anxiety. You know, I truly believe that the reason that I got sick is because I kept quiet. I 
you know, I had an upset stomach for years, but I think it was just all of those words and feelings that were suppressed and it was just like corroding in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, while I know that physically I was very strong then, um, I'm not sure that mentally I was as strong as I am now. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Oh my gosh. So I'm trying to imagine like living in a way where you're just constantly being silenced and kind of constantly having to, I don't know, on a, in a way like not be on your own team in order to kind of stay, I guess like my therapist would talk about it in a way of like staying in someone else's or trying to stay in someone else's window of tolerance in order to like survive the moment and mm-hmm. what we kind of have to do in order to do that, like the things you had to to hide or shift or like stuff down in order to make your environment livable. That's just, that's just a lot that'll weigh on you. I'm, I'm sure you say, yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just a terrible way to live. And that's kind of like what broke me. Cause I'm like, I've been doing this for 10 years and this isn't living. Like this feels terrible. I, I'm not doing life for myself. I'm doing life for this person. And when you're with the right person, you should be able to do life for yourself and for the other person, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Was there any kind of like, I guess I call them like strategies that you use during that time to kind of help yourself cope, whether it was helpful or unhelpful to kind of like Um, get through it? Yeah, I I ran a lot. I was like, I joke that I was like Forrest Gump because all I ever did was like go on a run. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all I could do. You know, I was, I was trapped. I wasn't really allowed to work, um, but I wasn't allowed to go spend money. I wasn't really allowed to be around friends. Like I had all of these things that I was supposed to be doing at home. Um, you know, so I'd go on a run at 5am and then I'd go on another one at noon. And so there was a lot of that, but other than that, no, it was just a lot of being miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't say that I coped well. Yeah. That's hard. Oh my, oh my gosh. Um, okay. Yeah. Running, running is definitely something that I, that I've used as a coping skill too. So I'm happy you at least had that. <laughs> but it does yeah, not sound it became fun. Like, it was like, kind of like my angry thing though. Like I don't run anymore ever unless I'm like really mad. It happens like maybe once or twice a year because I associate it now with that trauma and like mm-hmm. that healing process. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, I don't enjoy it, but I do enjoy it when I'm like really mad or really frustrated. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that really like kind of shines a light on why you had to run in the first place then. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so talk to me about kind of like the getting out of the marriage and meeting Steph. A lot of the things you were writing about that, I felt, um, I just, I felt like I understood a bit of what you wrote when you talked about like going from like a man to a woman and I think you wrote something something about like it being like a life hack is to marry a woman and I could not agree more (laughs) (laughs) and just like going from so misunderstood to so understood like like how how did that feel and what did that look like yeah that was honestly kind of a mind fuck because I'm like do like do I trust this I've spent the last 10 years of my life not trusting somebody or anybody really I mean I was so skittish and then to have somebody that you meet and just uh, like we understood each other 
fully from the moment we met. It was like the moment we locked eyes, I was like, I know everything about this woman and she knows everything about me. It was insane. Mm. So it was a lot of like unlearning and a lot of um, kind of trial and error between the two of us because I had these like defense mechanisms where if she did something really nice, I thought that there was going to be something behind it. Like, you know, cause my ex would only do something nice if he had done something terrible or he was about to do something terrible. And I'm like, Oh, this is this pattern again. I can't trust her. And she's like, no, you can't trust me. I wouldn't do that to you. So it was, it was a very interesting lesson in trust and letting go. Um, but honestly, like the most incredible empowering feeling that I've ever felt. And I feel it to this day. And we've been together for over four years. Yeah. Wow. That, that's very, very cool. It kind of almost, it sounds to me kind of like you, your inner like knowing in your body in a sense kind of knew that like, that was what you needed was to be with Steph. And that was who knew you and not what you were in before. Totally. I was like, the universe is telling us to be together because, you know, we, it was kind of terrifying in the beginning because I was in the middle of a divorce and, you know, I do have this religious family and, um, it wasn't great timing, but I'm like, we can't stop what's happening. Like you and I like collide and we become one flame. So I just had to like, let go and be like, you know what? if people have a problem with this, that's their own thing. But like, I can't walk away from this woman. She would be around the next corner. Even if I tried to run away, you know, she's mm-hmm. my person. Yeah. Did you deal with any kind of internal shame or whatnot in kind of like the coming out process or were you kind of okay since shame is in like from, I guess, growing up in the church. I hear a lot of people talk about um, like internalized homophobia just from growing up being told that's wrong every single day. Uh, Did you experience any of that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I was not afraid to tell my friends or my community, but I was terrified to tell my family. And Mm -hmm. that felt bad because your family should be the people that have your back no matter what. But I knew, you know, I grew up again in the 90s where we like threw around the term gay and fag and that was just what you do and you make fun of anybody that you saw was gay like that's what my family did and I know you know they're not terrible people but that's it was like a trend back then um but that stuck with me it's like burnt in me and so I felt a lot of shame I'm like I'm having flashbacks to you saying these things about these people and now I'm one of them um so that was really hard and when I told them it felt so good. Like I felt so liberated because I had to get to this point where I was like, you know what? My life, I'm a grown ass woman. Like, I'm so happy. This person makes me better. Here you go. I don't care. Um, and that felt great for a minute until they responded. And then I was like, Oh, I do care because they're having a hard time with it. Um, so I did, I felt a lot of shame, but once I worked through that with my family and kind of came out to our community and the world, like that felt amazing because the support was, incredible and I knew that the majority of the people in my world didn't think it was wrong they thought it was incredible Mm. yeah that's that's very very cool I had somewhat of like a a similar experience with the coming out process it's like you feel very or at least I felt like so afraid that once I came out then I was like banished on the outside and like I was the 
the weird one and the this and that. And like, I was going to be disconnected. I think that was my fear, but it became really evident when I started meeting people on the outside of the circle with me that like, oh, you guys are the, oh, you think this way too? That means that's not the only way to feel and think. And (laughs) it's just so cool. Then all of a sudden you like, you find your people and and you also find the people that like you had that stick by you. I know you wrote a lot about different friendships and whatnot. And um, that's really, really cool. It's just interesting to, you know, kind of look back on it. And I remember thinking this even when I was going through that period, like this actually doesn't affect anybody but me. So the fact that somebody cares that my wife and I like have the same sexual parts, you know, at the end of the day, that's all the difference is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like really blew my mind. I'm like, you guys shouldn't be thinking about that anyway. And this my relationship with this woman will never affect you. And if it does, it's going to be in a positive way because we are so happy. So it's weird. I mean, it's so weird and it's terrible that people have to feel that way. And it's terrible that people have to come out. It's like, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you talked a little bit about the whole concept of even coming out, like how that should just be normal. Like straight people don't to be like, Oh, Hey, I'm straight. And then this this whole big deal. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it's so interesting because we have two little kids. We have two daughters, they're eight and nine. And I'm like, how do we start this conversation with them when they're young? So they don't have to be like, mom, I'm dating a girl. They can just be like, Hey mom, I'm dating Jackie, you know? Um, but it's hard because society pounds it into their brain that they need to be with a man. It's like every single Disney movie, every single, you know, Liv and Maddie, they have crushes on boys, like every single show. And I'm like, how are we still doing this? Because even when my kids are like playing dolls or Legos or whatever, or, you know, the game of life, they like stick a husband in the car. And I'm like, well, why'd you choose that? You know, like fine. If you want a husband, that's fine. I'm totally like, great. Hope he's great. Um, but (laughs) yeah, hope he's great. It's just (laughs) weird that that's what they're, they automatically go to. And I'm like, this needs, we need to change this. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What ways, I guess, do you think you're going to do that with your kids just by kind of like questioning it and kind of starting conversations? Yeah. We have really open conversations a lot. And I know, you know, they're at that age where they don't want to talk about their crushes or this or that, but, um, but how old are know, they? We, they're eight and nine. Okay. You know, they're also in zoom school right now. So I'm like, how do you even have a crush through a screen? But, oh, gosh. um, <laughs> they don't even get to talk to each other. It's terrible. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of conversations around, you know, dating and like what that looks like. And if somebody has two dads or two moms and, um, you know, they don't, think it's weird but we're we're constantly like you know you can marry a woman right (laughs) you know that it can be this way so you know all without trying to push like who do you have a crush on so it's sticky but I think that was part of my growing up too is like we didn't have a lot of conversations about anything real so we have conversations about all that stuff every day because I want them to be able to just say whatever and have no fear of being different or judged or whatever Mm. Yeah, I get that. I, I listen, or do you ever listen to Dax, Dax Shepard's um, podcast? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah, uh, he talks a bit about, um, I forgot what exactly the conversation was, but about how he, they're kind of like bringing in like old Disney movies. Uh, he didn't know if he wanted to like show his kids old Disney movies or 
nachos canceled Disney movies kind of like Sleeping Beauty and stuff like that and so the result was kind of him just like bringing up conversation like oh that's weird that man just kissing that woman when she's asleep and has no option to say no (laughs) yeah (laughs) and just kind of like bringing up that like hey that that sucks that like she's supposed to be able to give consent and like what that even means so oh my gosh I just I mean I I clearly have no children and I raising them sounds so like you have such a huge opportunity, but it sounds so scary. Cause yeah. Oh man. Um, it's like exciting and scary because I do feel like right now we're on the cusp of normalizing more of this stuff. Like at least where we live, it's like very open, but it is, it is scary because it's so easy for them to fall down that line because it's been so traditionally accepted for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I, I'm just like wondering what that experience would be like, like as a kid with parents that do talk about that and that do make it okay to like bring home a girl that you want to take to prom or something like that. Just because like I knew I was attracted to girls all growing up and but it was so clear that that was not okay. And so I just wonder like how much more free and how much sooner I would have been able to like fit inside of my own skin if I knew that that yeah. was okay. Well, and, like, how much better your relationships would be with the people around you. Yeah, for sure. I think that would be incredible. Yeah, because, like, from my experience, it, it feels sometimes, like, when you're hiding, like, or kind of, like, shoving down one part of you, you end up shoving down so many other parts of you, like, yeah. with it, which, oh, my goodness. Well, wow, I'm so happy that you met your wife, Steph. I was, like... Just, I was so excited, partially because that section of your book came obviously right after the part with your ex-husband. And I was like, yes, redemption. We got it. <laughs> it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So that, that's just, that's so cool. Um, I guess moving forward to the part of the book where you got diagnosed with breast cancer, what was your initial like feeling I guess, about yourself when you found out? Like, like the feeling like when I knew that I was sick or? Yeah, like when you knew you were sick, I've heard people talk about it in different ways of like um, their bodies working against them now or kind of Mm -hmm. what that feels like mentally. Yeah, I had, I had a really hard time with some of that dialogue because that's what a lot of the messaging was. Like, your body's not working anymore. Your body's broken. Your body's working against you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like my body is trying so hard to survive. You know, everybody has cancer cells in their body. Mine just went a little crazy and reproduced. So um, it's, again, I was like, I want to normalize this and I want to honor my body. And I want to thank my body for like keeping me alive and giving me a chance to fight through this. So I didn't see it that way, but I remember having a lot of issues with the women that were saying that because I have quite a big cancer community um, that I've been a part of since I was diagnosed. But I, when I was diagnosed, I didn't feel like something was wrong with me. Like I knew I hadn't been feeling well, but I was like, okay, well, you know, my body is strong. And if, if this is it for me, this is it for me. Like everybody has to go at some point, but I was kind of excited to see what I could do, which sounds a little nuts, but I'm like, let's go. Let's, let's fight this thing. Let's kill it because Mm -hmm. I truly felt like I could. And I didn't want that to be the dialogue. I didn't want negativity to be the dialogue. Yeah. 
That's really cool. Like how you responded on the phone to the people who told you your cancer was aggressive. Like, well, I'm aggressive. And I'm like, yeah, you are. Yeah. You know, you look at even what's happening now in the world and there's just so much fear. And I'm like, life is so short. Like I can't live in fear. Fear makes us sick. Fear yeah. makes us sick. So I'm not going to buy into that. I'm not going to buy into it now. I wasn't going to buy into it then. Like you do the best you can. And you like look at what you have in the moment and you appreciate it and you move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a really, really powerful mindset to have going into it, especially because I think like going back to what you said earlier of like your stress and your like keeping yourself quiet was what made you sick like it's kind of like in a way cancer was your body saying hey pay attention to me like help me like I wasn't made to be to go through that and then that gave you like I guess an opportunity to kind of like fight for yourself in a way with yeah, your body totally yeah I was yeah. like wake up let's go I'm like okay <laughs> I'm yeah. not prepared but okay <laughs> oh wow wow I was um reading kind of what you were writing about the different responses that you got from different friends and whatnot and was hoping if you would like to share some of those on here just so the people listening can hear things that they should definitely not say or things that would be helpful to say um, for if anyone has someone in their life who has oh, a similar man. experience. Yeah, it's really funny because I feel like this is something that I actually need to write a separate book on because the response has been like so incredible because it's applicable to any hard situation like this yeah. one this lesson and empathy that is so spelled out and cut and dry um but I remember when I posted like hey world I have cancer um please don't treat me different please don't have sympathy for me like this is normal and it sucks and it's going to happen to one of you so you know things that people don't want to hear but immediately like I, my phone and my inbox were just flooded with like oh, my girlfriend had it a few years ago and, you know, like, you should talk to her. She's totally fine now. And I'm like, do you think that's helpful? Like, first of all, is she fine? Like, now that I'm on the other side of cancer, I truly know that, like, it's not fine. You don't just go back to normal and feel great. Like, you have a shitty, like, few years afterwards. It's not longer. I'm only two years out. So don't just say, like, it's like treating it like it's a cold. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's totally fine now. It's like, no, no, no her life got completely like turned upside down and her body and her mental capacity. So I was so turned off by that. And I'm like, also, have you talked to your friend? Like, did they say they're fine? Because I guarantee if they were being honest with you, they wouldn't tell you that they're fine. Mm -hmm. So that one really got me. Um, a lot of people were like, you're a fighter. You've got this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Again, like, it sounds like I'm running like a 5k. I'm like, yeah, okay. Except for like, I literally could die. And that really bothered me too. Cause I'm like, I'm okay with the fact that I could die. Like I clearly don't want to, and it's terrifying to think about, but let's not dumb this down. Like this is a disease that takes hundreds of thousands of lives every year. So if I don't win, if I don't fight hard enough, like I'm going to feel like a complete failure and like, you just can't put that pressure on people. So that really, really bothered me. Um, the one that got to me the most was this woman that reached out and told me that her sister had it and she was young and healthy, just like you and this and this. And, you know, then she died. 
And our biggest regret is that, yeah. And our biggest regret is that she didn't leave more letters for the kids and we didn't have more pictures. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, A, who are you? B, like, you can't say that to people because what you learn when you're diagnosed is that there's so many different treatments. There's so many different scenarios. Not one diagnosis is the exact same because it's in a different body. And there's so many different types of breast cancer and stages. And so I'm like, you didn't even tell me like what went wrong or, you know, what, what her stage was or like if she had been going downhill for a long time, it was just so abrupt. And I was like, how do you think that made me feel? It was so triggering. And then I spent the next like few months like wondering, should I write my kids letters? And I didn't, I wanted that to be like up to me to come to the decision of like my health is deteriorating. I should probably like be proactive and write my kids letters. But I mean, that one still haunts me. And I'm like, I don't, I know she was probably just processing her own thing, but don't project that on somebody that's newly sick or anybody that's sick. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there were just, there were just so many comments like that, like the, you're so brave. And I'm like, what the <laughs> again, like people just want to say things because it makes them feel better that they said something. But yeah. I'm like, okay, let's talk about bravery for a second. Like I didn't, ask for this but I'm also not going to just sit here and let it eat away at me and you wouldn't either so it's not about being brave it's just about like not wanting to die which nobody would want to like willingly sit there and let cancer take their life mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah I'm very very explicit about that in the book and it is very interesting to think about what we say to people when we're uncomfortable with yeah. their discomfort Oh, yeah. Yeah. How you talked about like, the world's just not comfortable with pain. And I think you wrote it like, not comfortable, like witnessing someone else's pain, how you since you got the diagnosis, you kept going back to the studio and back to or back on like social media and stuff. Um, And how that just makes people uncomfortable. And I think I hope we're doing work today to make to make pain be less taboo and to make these kind of conversations not need this like quick fix, like just let God handle it or just oh pray about it. Or... <laughs> oh my <Yeah>. gosh. <laughs> well, it's like if you really sit back and think about the way that we respond as humans, like we've all responded in a way that we shouldn't have, but it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that was more for me than for them. Like, yeah, that made me feel better because I said something, but it wasn't the right thing. And I, I remember the first and one of the only people that actually said the right thing to me out of thousands of people that reached out was a girl who had had cancer. And she was like, hey, I heard about your diagnosis. I just want to say that this totally sucks. And I'm so sorry you have to deal with it. And I was like, oh, my God, like I was just I felt so full of like warmth and love and compassion I feel I felt understood I felt seen and I was like Mm. yeah this does suck and I'm sad I have to go through it too like thanks but it was so much better than the response of like this toxic positivity that like really only made the other person feel like they said the right thing but they didn't understand my pain Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be sick you don't have to be going through the thing that the person is going through to sit with them And I think that's where the world is like a little bit off still. It's like, no, let's take a minute. Let's sit down and let's really think about what would be helpful for them to feel or hear before we just open our mouths. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a client the other day who had miscarried. She lost her baby at 40 weeks and her friend had showed up and she was like, well, at least you have your other daughter. And it's like, 
most normal people know, I mean, that's a pretty like blatantly stupid thing to say, but yeah. <laughs> most people know that like you took it too far, but we've all said like stupid things like that in different situations where you're just like, whoa, like, no, what you need to do is just sit there and be like, I'm so sorry. This blows. Yeah. Like, how can I support you? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That reminded me a lot of the different things you're talking about. Have you read any Brene Brown books? Um, I, I think I read one. I'm, believe it or not, I'm not a huge reader. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No but I think I did read one. Yeah. Yeah. She she wrote kind of a similar list um, about just responses to someone sharing like their pain or their shame stories and stuff like that. And very similar to what you listed. So I think it's just so important to get out there that like, we don't need fixers. We just need people to sit there with you and let you feel what you're feeling without having to match it in some kind of way or. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I do talk a lot about that, like people that compare people that ask a lot of questions. It's like, yeah, people that fix or people that kind of project on you. And then the people that pop up out of nowhere because they are like, I want to do the right thing just in case something goes wrong. But it's, we all see ourselves in these categories. And I think it is important to talk about because when you look at it, you're like, oh, I can see where that isn't helpful and where I need to change and how that would impact my relationships and how I can really truly show up for other people. Mm. Yeah. What, um, what was your experience? I guess like you probably went to a million and one hospitals and appointments. And <laughs> so uh, many, so many, as you said, beige rooms. So, so many waiting rooms. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What was your experience? Cause like you talk a little bit about how like fucked up America's healthcare system is. Mm. And I hear about that. My girlfriend's a, an ER nurse. So I hear about that a bit from her perspective. Um, and I'm kind of in a very big, like, like curiosity phase with that at the moment because I'm just now for the first time well over the last like three years opening my eyes to like the government and politics being the most corrupt thing Uh, in the world yeah Um, what was your experience going through that in healthcare like how do you feel like that played out as far as um like us mentioning earlier the thing with like the lipstick and the compact mirror like how they how they see women how they treat them how they um just, I guess, what was that experience like? Uh, I felt like I was just like another number in a waiting room. Um, I, the healthcare system itself, like in the hospitals themselves, they don't, they pull a little bit of like the pink sisterhood. That's more just like this culture that's created outside of the hospitals, but they're definitely like pushing their support groups and they're definitely pushing their drugs and they're definitely feeling bad for you and looking like you're going to die, looking at you like you're going to die. So that was really hard for me because I'm like, this could be such a different experience for people. This could be such an empowering experience for people, no matter if they're going to live through this or not. But like you have this opportunity to like put a plant in the waiting room and not serve like, coca-cola to people that are also getting poison injected into their veins like you have this opportunity to make this such a positive experience it's not going to cost you guys any more money but you're not like so it almost seems like we're like 20 years behind but also just like the financial burden of it was Mm. insane I can't even believe how much I still pay out of pocket every year for checkups and the ongoing 
you know, side effects of chemo that are actually worse than the chemo themselves. So I have a huge issue with the system and it's really hard for people that don't understand it. And I'm like, I don't want you to have to live through this, but like something has to change because I'm still spending almost 20 grand a year out of pocket on top of what I pay for my premiums just to like stay healthy and feeling somewhat normal. Oh, wow. It's insane. That is a lot of money. It's insane. Yeah. I hear, oh my gosh, I hear so much about that. Like my friend has um, uh, type 2 uh, diabetes and what she says yeah. she has to pay for, um, oh my gosh, what is it called? Yes, insulin, which yeah. is literally just to get, like, if she doesn't have it, she's literally going to die. And what she has to pay for that versus what it just costs the hospital or the maker or whatever, the, the like, yeah. that is just pure evil. Oh, it's and horrible. it makes me so mad. And it's like, what do we do about it? Well, and that's what's so interesting. So, you know, at the end of my treatment, I had a very aggressive form of cancer. And because of this, that, and the other for my particular case, like I have a pretty high chance of it coming back. And so what they want to do for me is like block all my estrogen. So they want to give you this drug called tamoxifen that blocks all your estrogen, but it's a carcinogenic drug. And I'm like, why would I take a drug that causes different cancers to prevent another cancer from coming back, which also gives me osteoporosis, puts me in menopause for the 20 years that I'm on it. Like my bones were aching. Like it was just this horrible, horrible drug. And they push that on you so hard. And if you say no, they make you feel so much shame. But like, if you really do the research outside of the U.S., because the U.S. is so censored, if you do the research outside of the U.S., you see that this drug, like, isn't that effective. Like, it Mm. does not make sense to be so miserable for like, it's like, you know, 20% effective on the what 1% chance that you have of it recurring for most people. In my case, it's like 20% effective for the 20%. I'm like, I'd rather feel good and do all the other things that I can to prevent cancer. You guys just want my money because it used to be a five-year drug. Now it's a 10-year drug. Then they're saying it's a 20-year drug. And I'm like, this is going to kill people. This drug is going to kill people and you're going to make millions of dollars in the meantime. It's all about money. Oh my gosh. Dude, I'm like... I have been feeling so many emotions the past few weeks, and anger is like the primary one lately. Oh, <laughs> so now I'm just you need like, to go on a run. <laughs> I need to go on a run. That's what I need yeah. to do once it stops like ice snowing out there. My God. Um, wow. Wow. That has got to be just so, honestly, just really dehumanizing to be like, I'm putting my life in your hands because I have no other option. And I'm just seen as dollar signs to you. Yeah, it's about money. And it's so interesting because my oncologist and I kind of butt heads a lot because I'm like, well, what about this research from Europe or this research? And it's like almost like she's disappointed that I found it. And Mm -hmm. the last time I went in, you know, they ask every time, like, are you going to restart this drug? And I'm like, I'm never going to take that drug. And she goes, I know. And I'm like, what? And she's like, she's like, you know, I have to ask. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Thank you for finally saying that two and a half years later, but also, you know how corrupt this is. That's what you just told me. So you do, you're just like, nobody cares. Why am I giving you my money? But like, you also feel like you have to, because like, you need the imaging, you need this, like you need that. But there's so many like slimy little ways that they, they get you. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm like, is she afraid of losing her job? If she doesn't check in with me, like that's fucked up too. 
Oh my gosh, yeah. Did you have any um, really positive experiences with healthcare workers? Or I know you said something about, I think, the first radiologist, or no, somewhere at the beginning oh, yeah. of the section. Yeah, what, what did that look like? Yeah, so 99% of my encounters were honestly terrible. And I try to see the light in every situation, but I did have. Um, this woman who had taken one of my spin classes in Portland that saw when I was diagnosed to reach out to me and she happened to be the physician's assistant for the top breast surgeon in Portland. And she reached out and she said, how can I help you? And this is in my early stages of diagnosis where they basically just tell you you have cancer and then send you home. And you're like, well, is it the dying kind? Like how long do I have? Um, so she was like, let me know what you need, got in touch with everybody that was like doing my biopsies and this and that, got all of my information. She was like, they should have talked this over with you. So she had me into her office, didn't charge me because my insurance wasn't covered at their office. Mm. Um, and so she walked me through it and she said, we want, like, we want to be your team. And I know that your insurance isn't going to pay for it, but we're going to, we're going to figure it out. Like we're going to fight for you because when they looked at all my stuff, um, I was only eligible for one surgeon in Portland. I'm self-employed, so I pay for my health care out of pocket. It's so much money, but it's terrible coverage. And um, the surgeon that I was able to see, like, wanted to basically take, like, my whole boob, like, nipple included. And she looked at all my stuff, and she's like, no, 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 no. Like, if you want to keep your nipples, you can keep your nipples. And I was like, well, that's a big deal for women. Like, mm-hmm. that's a really big deal. So, like that tells me that this other surgeon isn't as confident. And of course I want to go with you. So then I was like, Oh my God, if you guys don't take me, I'm going to be so stressed out. Like I got to keep my nipples. So they were incredible and they like fought so hard for me. So I was able to work with them and I'm like, okay, there are good people in the system. Um, I do think that a lot of them are burnt out and have terrible bedside manner. I get it. You work for like a broken system and you probably have a lot of patients that are very unappreciative and negative. So that would be very hard, but I was so thankful for those women. They were so incredible every step of the way. Yeah. Oh, that, that is really good to hear that at least out of the, I know 1% out of the other 99%. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So, so tell me about, about you right now. You, you said you have been in remission for two years. Am I saying that right? Yeah. They don't really let you say that, but that's what I say. They say that you can't say that until you hit the five year mark. And I'm like, well, okay. They call it no evidence of disease. So same thing. Um, well, you say whatever you want to say. Yeah. I'm I'm cancer free. Um, yeah. So two and a half years coming up on three years after my diagnosis date, I don't worry about recurrence often. I do have a lot of, um, side effects still from the treatment. I, I think I was overtreated and I ended up with Hashimoto's and like a recurring SIBO. Um, so I am uncomfortable the majority of the time, but I don't, I rarely worry about cancer, which is great. Um, And I just kind of move forward knowing that I'm doing the best that I can. And, you know, the odds are pretty small that it would happen again. But if it does, it does. Yeah. But now you don't get to eat gluten, though. I know. Oh, my God. It's the worst. (laughs) Hashimoto's. No. That's also my my girlfriend has that, too. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. That sounds like the worst. I'm like making wanting to make pasta and it's just not possible. Well, lucky for me, I've never been like a huge pasta fan, but I do miss like bread. 
Oh. I want a baguette with like butter and salt on it right now. Oh yeah. Wait, have you found a good gluten-free bread brand? This is so off topic, but like, um, what would you suggest? I, I honestly don't really try because okay. they've been so bad and it's like $90 for a loaf of bread. And I'm like, meh. Yeah, unexaggerated. <laughs> but there's like okay. some, yeah, there's some pretty decent like gluten-free pastas, I guess. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, um, I have like two more two more questions for you. Um, one of them is what what are ways that today after after your journey, I guess like in a way to honor what you've been through and whatnot. Uh, what are ways that you that you connect with your body today and kind of take extra good care of yourself? Mm, man, again, this is like an ever evolving thing, but um, I'm learning. I think. Huh. I think what I need to learn the most is to slow down. And this is, this is work that I'm like very new to because it makes me uncomfortable. Um, but I'm very, very cautious of what I eat, which I always have been, but, um, sending gratitude to every inch of my body every time I'm working out. Cause that's like my love language. So that's been really helpful in times when I look at myself and I'm like, you don't look like you. I'm like, you know what? This body is like a fucking temple. Um, so honor it. So a lot of that. And then I'm going to be doing some hypnosis and some other things to start to kind of shake out some of the trauma and, uh, hopefully help with like the gut issues too, which I'm really excited about that kind of work. Mm. That's, that's very, very cool. Wow, that is that is awesome. I always get excited for that question at the end of interviews because I like I'm just really interested in what people do to connect with themselves and to take care of themselves and mm. and how they got from there to here. So that's very cool. Uh, my my last question for you is the most off topic thing that we will talk about today so just to give you <laughs> besides the bread question this is gonna be different but would you rather every time you were home alone by yourself or anywhere like anywhere by yourself like any kind of room at all uh everything in it became like alive like toy story like the tape has legs and like talks they're all friendly everyone's cool and there's no threats or anything like that but the second someone else comes into the room it all goes back to normal so no one ever like you can't prove it to anybody but you go through this all the time would you rather that or every time you saw a dog that dog started talking in french wait do you speak french no, but I wish I did. Okay, this dog, the dog starts talking in French to you and just starts telling you all about his life and wisdom, but it's in French, so you don't understand it, but you're experiencing a talking dog. Oh my gosh, this is, um, I really need to learn French so I can definitely <laughs> answer this. I did take French for three years and don't remember anything, um, but I'm going to say the dog because okay. I feel like dogs talk with their eyes anyway, and I think that'd be the cutest thing ever. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! Little <laughs> that would be so cute. I just pulled that I out think of my that ass. The, the room like would actually kind of freak me out. Yeah, I can't say that I disagree with you on that. So, <laughs> I was like staring at my. I was trying to think of what question I was going to ask because I never think of them ahead of time. I was just kind of like, all right, put some random things together. And I looked over right. at my packaging tape, and I was like, what would happen if it just walked over and talked to me? And just and, like wrapped you in like a tapey hug. <laughs> Oh, yeah, exactly. That doesn't sound fun. So I was like, let's ask her that. Let's see how she feels about that. Oh, my God. I love it. 
Oh my gosh. Well, Leanne, how can, how can people find you and your book and social media? Like what are all the things about you? That, All the that things. <laughs> okay, so the book is called Please Don't Send Me Flowers. Um, it's available on Amazon and right now, officially, wherever books are sold. Um, I'm not in a lot of stores yet. I'm still working on that, but you can go and order it from pretty much any book. They can find it through the database, So, which is awesome. Um, and then my Instagram is Leanne Saffer, L-I-A-N-N-E, and then my website is LeanneSaffer.com. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will put all those links in the show notes below. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure getting to talk to you and hear from you more about just your such a crazy, crazy life, man. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. I hope you have a wonderful day over in the snow in Portland. You too. Bye. Bye.